Things a fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Anna, and I am here with Andrew Hunter Murray, James Harkin, and Anne Miller. Once again, we've gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts that we found in the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James. My fact this week is that Anna wants to be like Madonna and known by just one name. <laughs> What that. was that all about? Did I? I couldn't work out if normally could, we do two names or one, so I, I mixed it up. I thought it was casual and friendly. Like, done enough podcasts. I now. thought it was power mad. <laughs> so I thought it was maybe that you couldn't work out how to pronounce your own surname. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been that Dan's confused me over the years. Okay. I'd like to be known as Lightning from now on on this podcast, please. <laughs> all right, that's You've fine. You've already got three so names. So I'll introduce yeah. you all again. <laughs> My name is Anna, and I'm joined by Lightning, James, and Anne. (laughs) Solid. Okay, uh, my fact this week is that in 1758, there were two camels on display in London, one with a single hump and one with two humps. They were advertised as the surprising camel and the wonderful camel. (laughs) (laughs) Which was which? I think the one with the single hump was surprising. And the one with two humps was wonderful. I think I, they're all surprising to start off with. Yeah, I but, And then a difference in humps is also surprising. So I think they're mm. both surprising. Are they? And yeah. they're both wonderful. Yeah. Let's not do camels down. Yeah, I wonderful. agree with lightning. <laughs> <laughs> I read this in the London Review of Books, and it was a review of a book called Menagerie by Caroline Grigson. Uh, I haven't read that book yet, but I am going to read it because it looks amazing. There's cool. some really good That's facts in that review. I yeah. read a really good book about the history of London Zoo a couple of years ago. Uh, my favourite thing in the whole book was that London Zoo used to be at the Tower of London, and when it was there, you could get in for free if you brought a dog or a cat to feed to the lions. Nice. Yeah. Was it entry for one, or was it for a family? Or did you have to bring kittens if you wanted your children to go and see the lions? I yeah. think if you were bringing a family, you had to bring a surprising camel. <laughs> <laughs> So one other thing that I saw, because, um, yeah, that book does look incredible, doesn't it? And mm. one other thing that I really like that she spotted is that this was in the age where it was very fashionable, if you're a wealthy person, to bring back lots of exotic animals from various places or to send agents off to get them. And apparently one London merchant asked his agent to send him two or three apes, but he forgot the R on or, and so he was delivered <laughs> 203 <laughs> apes. Oh. Where did he put them? No. I don't know. Apparently a first cargo of 80 apes arrived with a letter <laughs> promising that more would Wow. There was one other thing in there that um, George IV had a giraffe at Windsor uh, and the giraffe didn't flourish very well because it was in Windsor and not where it's supposed to live. Um, <laughs> Which is at Sandringham. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when it got sick, uh, they put it down to sympathy for the king's gout. Oh. What a load of PR nonsense. <laughs> Sympathy for the gout. That's outrageous. Well, you can say that, or in an alternative fact universe, you can say <laughs> that maybe, you know, it was feeling sad because the king it, was sad. Maybe it was sad. Do you know they have camel wrestling festivals in Turkey? Is that camels <clears throat> wrestling against each other? It is camels wrestling against each other, yeah. But How does a camel wrestle? Yeah, they're on all fours. So. Well... With great difficulty, yeah. <laughs> is the old joke. Um, they, I don't know if it is with camels, but often they do it by showing the two competents a sexy lady 
insert animal here. So they might bring on a sexy lady camel and then the, then remove it and then the two blokes remaining say, well, I want it, well, I want it. And little do they know they're not going to get it. Do you know what constitutes a beautiful camel since you mentioned a sexy lady camel? Long eyelashes. Yeah, they've got <clears throat> lots of eyelashes. They do have lots of eyelashes. Although maybe in the camel world because that's so common then short eyelashes. Um, Lovely lady humps. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I've been reading about Oman lately because we're researching for the O series and they have camel beauty contests in Oman and they're put on by the government and it's a milking (laughs) and beauty contest (laughs) and a beautiful camel apparently should have a well-proportioned body and face, a long garib, which is the area between the hump and the neck. Uh, a clear and huge hump. Uh, it needs to have... This was written by men, wasn't it? <laughs> firm ears and pouty lips, uh, big whiskers and a fur shimmer. Right. Uh, yeah, and needs good posture and it needs to be huge. <laughs> that kind of makes sense, all that stuff, that I think. That sounds quite attractive, do they, doesn't it? Do they, is it of both sexes? As in, do male camels compete against female camels or just has to be a beautiful camel? Yes. Really? So. Yeah. I don't think you can tell a male and female camel apart by looking. I, don't think I, I bet you can. It depends <laughs> where you're looking. Yeah. <laughs> in the 18th century, there was a collection of camels on display on the Strand, just around the corner from us. So it was at the Talbot Inn in the Strand, and it belonged to a man called Richard Heppenstall. And so that's exactly where Aldwych Tube Station used to be, which I think oh, is okay. just at Aldwych, oh. isn't it? He tried to lure women in to view his herd of camels, because at the time, women were afraid they would be a bit dirty and a bit spitty and a bit smelly um, so he advertised them as having breath as sweet as a sow's which is weird because <laughs> I didn't think of sow's as having particularly sweet breath but um, apparently soon afterwards there was a journal article or a newspaper article that reported that the ladies are especially charmed by the camels and express great satisfaction at the sweetness of their breath see that's quite high risk because I read that when a camel spits at you it's also kind of vomiting at you because the content of their stomach comes up as yeah, well it's not a spit so, is it Yeah. Oh, really? so we go oh it's just spitting no Maybe that's what generates such sweet breath, though. <laughs> Do you know what you could get from a camel what? if it's bat at you? A cold, because one of the four common cold viruses originated in camels. No. Yes. Really? Yeah. And spread to humans. This is according to the German Center for Infection Research. Yeah, and there are four uh, global uh, human, they're called coronaviruses, and there are also things called rhinoviruses, mm. rhino meaning nose. Uh, they come from rhinos. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, and so one of these, one of these main ones, apparently, has made its way over from camels a long time ago. I don't know if you could still get the same virus inhabiting both, or whether it's come over and now it's only humans. Not sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, still. I didn't know that. A thirsty camel can drink as many as thirty gallons of water in thirteen minutes. Okay, yeah. which sounds okay. impressive, but I worked that out, and that's three point two five seconds per pint, and I can drink a pint in less than three seconds. Right. So mm-hmm. I can drink faster than a camel. It's short and long furlongs, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would be ahead after the first pint, but then by probably halfway through pint two, it might overtake me, <laughs> <laughs> and then by pint two hundred and forty, I'd probably <laughs> be struggling a little bit. So you just have to pick your race when you're challenging the camel to the drinking contest. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say to the camel, I want a drinking contest, and he says, okay, let's do 240 pints, you're like, oh, well, let's start at one and see how we go. And don't do double or quits on the next 239. <laughs> 
I didn't realize that there are three kinds of camel. I thought dromedarian bactrian were the only kinds, mm. but the wild bactrians probably have different chromosomes. It's got think three it's humps. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they found they did a DNA sequencing on it, and it's a different species. Wow. So wow. we've mentioned before that Saudi Arabia imports camels from Australia uh, because for meat, but actually now, have you heard that they're trying to rescue camels from Australia? So Australia's got uh, too many camels. Apparently, they're becoming a bit of a pest, and they were threatening to cull, I think, six thousand camels a few years ago and there was a big campaign set up in Saudi Arabia an internet campaign saying send the camels to us instead and we'll look after them yeah but the, Australia has a million feral camels so 6,000 is pretty small beer actually yeah I think we've said before they shoot them from helicopters yeah they do apparently one I think the, this was in the Australian apparently camels in Australia smash water tanks destroy fences come up to houses and antagonize people <laughs> I don't know how a camel antagonizes they're just trying to blend in <laughs> <laughs> Okay, on to fact number two, and that is Andy's fact. It's lightning's fact, I think you'll find. (laughs) Okay, my fact is that before they are launched, London sends all its trains to Austria to be beaten up. So there's this wind tunnel, which is called the Rail Tech Arsenal. There's a huge article on Wired about them recently, and the article describes them as train torture chambers. So you can put a whole 330-foot-long train in this tunnel, and then they basically simulate extreme weather conditions and see how the carriages stand up to it. So you can see what it'll be like for passengers if the train gets stuck in boiling sun or snow or huge wind conditions. That must be very confusing for the train, because normally when he goes in the tunnel, there's no weather. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like uh, Thomas getting fucked up <laughs> by the CIA. Are we in danger of anthropomorphizing trains a little bit here, Well, they shouldn't guys? draw those faces on the front, should they? <laughs> um, yeah. They do simulate conditions that they wouldn't necessarily come across in this country, don't they? Don't they go down to ridiculously low and high temperatures? Well, the London ones, they only test to minus 13 Celsius, okay. which is very would be very low for London, but they, they can set it to uh, minus 50 Fahrenheit. What would that be? It's... it's that's cold. That's really cold. Um, so trains from Kazakhstan uh, get sent there as well, and they'll have lower temperatures probably. Is everyone's trains go to this tunnel? Loads of them, like Germany, America, Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia. They all. It's the article describes it as the Eton College of the train testing world. <laughs> Where you get beaten up horrendously. You shove the train in the toilet for a bit. (laughs) You'd think if all the trains had to go through this tunnel, wouldn't it make sense for all the train factories to be in Vienna? Yeah. I guess it would, but we've got, I guess... Once you've built a train factory in Derby. And how do you, re- do you reckon they go? Are they allowed to go on the train tracks to get to the tunnel? Or do they have to go on a lorry because they're not past safety? Yeah, I think they get boated over. They do. They get sent trains over. Trains on boats. Yeah. Yeah. You so, get yeah. Um, trains which you can put cars on, don't you? I think we have one or two of those in Britain, but you get them especially abroad. Well, are you suggesting? You put cars on the Eurostar. I would yeah. just love to have a um, a car on a train on, on a, a boat. boat. <laughs> and <laughs> I'd pro- probably put like a bike rack on there as well. <laughs> Oh, also they've got um, I think it was in the news this week or last week we've finally got a direct train service from Britain to China I don't know why I say finally like we've all been desperately waiting (laughs) we've all been stood on the platform going it'll be here any minute Southern (laughs) Um, but yeah I think that's amazing it takes 18 days it's a freight train so you have to be a piece of freight (laughs) you're a piece of freight mate But it goes to Yiwu, which is in East China, and that's the place that provides 60% of the world's Christmas decorations. And so I think ah. it's like the new Santa's sleigh, and it goes direct <laughs> from China to London. But that has to actually be lifted from one track to the other sometimes because different countries have different wow. gauges. 
Just on train testing, do you know what the new measurement train is? No. No. This is this train that's constantly in operation around the country and it's to test all the tracks and it runs 125 miles an hour and it has various means of testing the track. So there are no passengers on it. Um, it was made in response to Hatfield. So that was the year 2000, wasn't it? And But it's got this amazing technology. So it can test tracks as people would have to at walking pace, but at 125 miles an hour by, for instance, firing lasers at them. And it measures contact with the rails and uh, it measures the electrical supply. And, you know, in some places you need to have a tilt on trains it checks yeah. uh, that the tilt isn't too much so it won't crash into a cliff next to it or something and these are go running around the country at all times so there are 100 mile an hour trains going around the country firing lasers at things <laughs> correct it's so cool they're really cool yeah have you heard about operation smash hit uh is it about 1970s pop stars <laughs> no it's not <laughs> it's very well named <laughs> god <laughs> Um, no, it was an experiment they did in 1984 in July by the British Central Electricity Generating Board. And what they did was they got a train and they set it to smash at 100 miles an hour into a flask of nuclear waste. What? what? A flask. What? And they televised this. A flask of nuclear waste. Yeah, so they had these new ways of storing nuclear material, hazardous material, mm-hmm. in these flasks, right? And very strongly built uh, sure. flasks. And they set one of these up on a track and they sort of wedged it into concrete. And this is an old bit of testing track they didn't need to use anymore. And they got an old train they didn't need and they set it going at 100 miles an hour. And then they they put it on TV. Millions of people watched it all around the world. And it was to show how safe these nuclear flasks were because it didn't break. Oh, it wow. barely lost any of its pressure at all. It was, com- it, and this was the final of a series of experiments they did, where they like engulfed them in flames. These flasks, and they dropped them from a big height. That's amazing. And they did like all these Looney Tunes experiments just yeah. to show you cannot break into these. It was to reassure the public. It's high risk though, because if you, one of those goes wrong, <laughs> sorry, we just I mean, wiped yeah. out the country. So France has had problems with trains lately. And I think it's important that we smash the myth that France is the train king of Europe because in 2014... (laughs) (laughs) Finally! (laughs) Come on then. So who is the king of trains? (laughs) The train king of Europe. Well, I think we should enter ourselves into the contest because France is out, right? In 2014, I think we've mentioned before, they made those trains that are too wide for their stations. Do you remember? So they they spent billions. That's um, pretty embarrassing for the train king of Europe. (laughs) (laughs) So this was, they'd spent... 15 billion euros on these trains. They were too wide, so they had to amend (laughs) thousands of platforms across France, so they fitted them. And then the following year, they made trains that are too tall to get through tunnels to take them (laughs) into Italy. Wow, so who's going to be your new train king of Europe, Anna? Well, like I say, I think we're in with the shot, guys. I would have thought Switzerland, but I was on a train in Switzerland last week and it got cancelled. And I had to walk across to another platform. You wouldn't think that in Switzerland, would you? No. For me, they were always the train prince of Europe I have a a nomination I I nominate Sweden because I went to Stockholm a few years ago and the train there was so amazing it was um, really lovely it felt like first class but standard class and they had a sign up saying if you're more than two minutes late we'll refund you in full two minutes wow it was the airport express train but that was a pretty good deal so I nominate Sweden for train king Okay. Look, these nominations uh, have all been accepted and will be duly considered. I'm a train Republican. <laughs> I think we should put all the trains in a shed. <laughs> we should move on quite soon. Has anyone got anything else? So in Vienna, mm-hmm. also in Austria, mm. um, they had an escalator reopening in 2015 <laughs> and 14,000 people um, signed up to turn up to this reopening of an escalator. Um, in the end, a good few hundred people turned up 
and the party just got out of hand and police had to be called to um, <laughs> calm the crowd down. Did someone afterwards say, well, that escalated quickly? <laughs> number three and that is Anne's fact. My fact is that the oil company Shell used to sell shells. <laughs> and is that a coincidence? The name and the selling of the shells or are the two things related? They were different generations so Marcus Samuel in 1833 started, had an antiques business and started selling seashells and then they got very popular so they started having these trading routes for import-export all over the world and then his son Marcus Samuel Jr. Uh, expanded the business different goods and then ended up Oil. Uh, oil is more lucrative than shell selling, isn't it? I, I guess they so. clocked yeah. onto that. A bit riskier, though. Uh, yes. Oils. For the world? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But also, um, you can't power a massive industrial economy just grinding up seashells. <laughs> so, I'm glad. Actually, seashells used to be used as currency um, well, many, many years ago. Um, what, what? Not here, not in Britain? No, the, before Britain existed. Like, I'm talking about thousands of years ago. Oh. I think they were cowrie shells. I'm going off memory a bit here. And they were used around Africa, I think, as currency. But then they found a new bay which had tons and tons and tons of cowrie <laughs> shells in. And then people just went and collected loads and loads of them and ended yeah. up completely collapsing the oh, very no. early economy. Wow. Did you know that Shell is revisiting its shell-based routes? Are they? In that they are helping to return shells to their natural environment. So they're sponsoring this non-profit organisation which collects shells from restaurants and then puts them back on beaches and in areas where oysters can cling onto them because apparently oysters like to cling onto other oyster shells. So there, there you go, they're Ooh. collecting shells again. Um, so I was really impressed with this fact and I thought it was brilliant. My husband already knew it because there is a Kurt Vile song uh, from the 30s about uh, shell. Did you know this? And Anne so, is married to a 101-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole song is about, uh, in Margate, there was a promenade and a man was selling shells and his son comes along and turns the business around and ends petroleum. It ends up being this big thing about uh, really? how oh, it's, conflicts come out of oil in the United the League of Nations from the 1930s. It's kind of cool. They used to write songs about very different things, didn't they, in the 30s? Yeah. <laughs> the, the first ever um, oil company was founded to harvest just oil that was floating on water. Because that was the first people knew about. Obviously, you don't know oil's in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So they sort of saw it there in Pennsylvania in 1859. And they said, maybe there's more oil underneath here. And they started drilling down. And then they struck oil. But I think that was the first time that oil was actually struck. You know that, just speaking of oil floating on water, so bitumen is, uh, it's like more solid oil. It's made of the same stuff, but it's slightly more compressed. And so I think the first ever oil kingdom that made its money from oil was the Nabataeans, who I love. I remember researching them for the N series. So in the You're third. always trying to shoehorn the Nabataeans. <laughs> in fact, Anna is actually short for a Nabataean. <laughs> I'm even older than Anne's husband. <laughs> No, this is incredible. They made their money because they were near the Dead Sea. So they based their kingdom around the Dead Sea. And they noticed these lumps of bitumen floating in the Dead Sea. And they were islands of tar. And the Egyptians liked to buy tar because they were used in the mummifying process Mm. for embalming. And they were also used Mm. for waterproofing boats. And so the Nabataeans went and swam out to these islands on the Dead Sea. Easy to swim in it because you float. Um, And they collected this bitumen, sold it to the Egyptians. And that's how they got so rich. And that's how they had the biggest kingdom of that time. That is great. Isn't that cool? That's really good. Love the Nabataeans. <laughs> um, do you know someone who wrote about seashells was Edgar Allan Poe? Did he? He wrote a book 
called The Conchologist's First Book. And it was his best-selling book. No. It? Yes, and also he didn't write it, really. So he, he, the original author said, can you rewrite this and sort of remix it yeah. in a cheaper way? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, don't tell the publishers that you're doing this because the publishers didn't want the author to do this, but the author wanted to make extra money. Wow. Like a Sparknotes version yeah. of the yeah. original book. So, um, so Poe needed the money, so he reordered the picture. He wrote a preface. Um, one of his biographers, Jeffrey Mayers, said Poe's boring, pedantic, and hair-splitting preface was absolutely guaranteed to torment and discourage even the most passionately interested schoolboy. <laughs> um, do you know when the best time to buy petrol is? Uh, when your car is like eighty percent empty. It's the winter, actually. Because uh, petrol gets more dense when it's colder, and so that means you get more for your money. Uh, so if you make sure you go and buy your petrol on a cold day, then more of it's going to come out for like the same how, amount because it's measured by volume. Like how metal expands when it's hot, so bridges change in length. Yeah. You get a different volume of petrol. <laughs> bridges don't expand that much in length. Like, oh, we've been on this bridge for ages. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very warm day. <laughs> Earliest oil drilling platform. Do you guys know when it was? Was it the Nabataeans again? (laughs) (laughs) That was collecting, not drilling. Um, It was not. It was Chinese, obviously, as all great inventions seem to be. This is in the 3rd century BC, and they drilled down 800 feet for oil, and they siphoned it up through bamboo poles. And the reason they did it was because salt was very valuable, and they used oil to create fuel, to create heat, to evaporate brine so that it left salt. And they had oil pipelines underground made of bamboo no that led way. from one like salt well to another. Come off it. Isn't that so incredible? Great. Bamboo pipelines? Apparently... Does was, not compute. It was in a real book, and I'll look it up again oh, okay. later to check that it wasn't Crazy Facts About Oil by <laughs> Mr. Muppet. Dan Schreiber. <laughs> <laughs> so if you defecated at 650 degrees Fahrenheit with a pressure of 3,000 pounds per square inch... Then it would burn. It would, and your poo would turn into oil. So oil is made through organic material, which is pressurised, and that would give you the same effect by doing that. We've all had curries like that, haven't we? <laughs> but doesn't that mean we could take, if everyone's poos were, this would be horrible, but if someone collected everyone's poos and put them in a hot, pressurised room? Yes. Now, so why don't we do that? Well, the reason being that the energy that you would need to create these conditions is a lot more than the energy uh, you would no. get from Those the oil. laws of thermodynamics! <laughs> it's called hydrothermal liquefaction. And it's a report by the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, um, where they did they say the defecation thing? They, or was that the Harkin spin? That is, <laughs> yeah, that is a Harkin spin. But they was, they said if you put um, feces under these conditions, that oh, would happen through okay. a pipeline. And what is pooing apart from feces, feces going through a pipeline? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, we should move on soon, but has anyone got anything else? Oh, I was looking at um, other businesses that originally sold different things. Okay. My favourite, which kind of makes sense when you, think, when you think about the name, is American Express. Do you know what they might have done first? Um, uh, travel or transport? Uh, sort of, so post. They were okay. Because in those days, uh, so they were founded in 1850, and the post, US Postal Service was sort of not as slick as it is today, and you could only post things as big as a regular letter-sized envelope. And so anything bigger, you'd go through an express company, so sort of horse guys on horseback and oh. uh, some other form of transport that was around like then. Like the Pony Wagons. Express. Yeah, and they would just take things. And American Express found out that they did a lot of business for banks, and carrying things like stock certificates and currency was a lot more lucrative than carrying big bulky things, and so they specialised and made their own products. Oh, Which I thought was really cool, because American cool. Express. That makes sense. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and my other favourite one is that it's still the same product, but the guys who invented YouTube uh, thought it was going to be a dating site. People would upload videos. 
like for what they were looking for and you mm. see what they were like Ooh, and then it turned out no one is very camera friendly and we all so. like cats but not in that way yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay we should move on to our final fact and that is my fact which is that when Mozart first performed in Naples he had to stop to take his ring off halfway through because the audience complained it was a magic ring <laughs> <laughs> a magic ring through which he was producing oil oh, no. at 650 <laughs> pressures. Oh, dear. Um, that's disgusting. Sorry. It wasn't that kind of ring they were referring but to. But Mozart would have liked that, wouldn't he? Because he, he had a dirty mind. Yeah, he had, he quite, had quite a sense of humour. Yeah. He was right about his farts and things. He was um, obsessively scatological, actually, wasn't it? Mm. And I think people have really tried to analyse this and work out why, but... He so he wrote to his cousin uh, quite rude letters very often, and one of them, for instance, was, "Well, I wish you good night." This is a swear warning for any listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, "Well, I wish you good night, but first shit in your bed and make it burst. Sleep soundly, my love. Into your mouth, your ass, your shove." What? And then he wrote another one saying, "I poo on your nose so it runs down your chin." Ugh. <laughs> I know. He, he also wrote a lot of really good stuff, guys. <laughs> well, some of the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, he wrote enough music that it would take you 202 hours to listen to all of it. Wow. That's pretty cool. I think they might. I've, this rings a bell from Classic FM. I think they might have just released the complete Mozart 200 hours. 202. Yeah. 200. Maybe they skipped off the last two. That was all the poo stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was the best-selling CD of last year, wasn't it? Or more CD, more Mozart CDs were sold than any other artist last year. Mozart loved poo. Yeah. It's possible that poo loves Mozart. Mm. There is a sewage treatment plant in Switzerland, <laughs> and in 2010 they started playing Mozart. Nope. To the waist. No. Yes. No. And what? I started dancing or what? <laughs> I, was, I don't know if you've seen Flubber. <laughs> the, they claimed that the music's vibrations would help the organisms, the microbes in it, to break down the waste and the cadences and all of these things. So they developed a process to play it. And the man who ran the place is a guy called Anton Stuckey. And he said he wasn't actually a fan of Mozart. And they had to convince him quite strongly that it would work to do it. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they did start. Interestingly, if you take... Um human eggs in IVF um, they grow better if you play techno music to them really? I read that last week in a, a, some study or wow. other so is this vibration we're thinking yeah or... that's vibration yeah I've just realised I haven't actually explained my fact because you all derailed me with your scatological sorry facts. magic sorry. ring yeah magic ring uh, so he was doing this concert in Naples he was 14 years old and it was in 1770 and a rumour had been spreading anyway that he was using magic powers to play that the audience refused to be entertained so they, and they refused to applaud and they just didn't see it as impressive because they assumed that his power was coming from this magic ring so halfway through his performance he had to stop and take off his ring and at that point apparently uh, the audience gasped in astonishment and fear while crossing themselves I, w- I went onto um, the Wikipedia for magic rings there is one and it starts off a magic ring is a ring, usually a finger ring. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what these magic cock rings are. <laughs> oh my god! It's a toe ring, James. They're talking about toe rings. Toe ring or earring, it could be, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. No I don't know why ring. my mind went there. Um, <laughs> yeah, a magic ring is a ring, usually a finger ring, that has magical properties. <laughs> Great. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I should say I found this fact in a book called Timekeepers by Simon Garfield, and it's amazing, and you should buy it. I'm loving it. I'm about a quarter of the way through. Wow. He's brilliant. So I didn't know... I knew Mozart was a child prodigy. I didn't know quite how much of one he Mm. was. Mm. So 
He could play the harp and the violin at the age of about three. Well, he started playing then. When he was five, he was quite good. And then his father took him on tour age six for three and a half years playing yeah. across Europe. And with his yeah. sister as well, who doesn't uh, get as much uh, cred. Was his sister better? I read somewhere that his sister was a better musician. I don't mm. think so. To start I, off with, because she was older. Well, she had, I think, didn't she? Oh, yeah. like, trans? Because he would play. I think she would transcribe. And there's some thought that she had more influence than right. perhaps is given credit for. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. And he could, I read this, I can't, I don't know if I believe it. He could write music before he could write words. Sort I of believe that. Yeah, it's yeah. easier to write blobs on a manuscript than it is to write actual letters. Yeah. <laughs> it is very interesting psychologically because he is the original child prodigy. And you've got to wonder what effects it had. So when I was listening to, I use this podcast as an excuse to listen to my genuinely favourite podcast, which is the Radio 3 Composer of the Week podcast. Right. Second, second <laughs> favorite. Genuinely favourite podcast. Second favourite. Radio Lab's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> um... And yeah, he was, the, and people were amazed at him and it must have affected him hugely. And apparently when he got older, he was very angry that people didn't treat him with the same kind of amazement and deference. Because once he was a grown up, he was just an incredibly talented musician mm. and composer. But as a child, he was like this magic genius. So he used to get very annoyed. That is really rough. Also because he will be a better player than he was when he was a kid. But rather than being admired for being more, like, better, more skilled, oh. everyone's gone, oh, you're not cute. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like some, it's like someone whose absolute best year was the uh, first year of university, and they can mm. never quite yeah. get back that magic again. That is the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so Mozart's first name was John. Mm-hmm. Um, Johannes Chrysostom Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart, and he was named after Saint John Chrysostom. Uh, and I was reading about the story of St. John Chrysostom, and it's quite good. He was living in the desert, and then a princess came to his cave because she was being attacked by animals, and he didn't really want her to move into his cave because he was worried that he might have sex with her. And so what he did was, like some kind of 1960s sitcom, he drew a line in the middle of his cave and said, I'll stay on my side of the line and you stay on your side of the line. And then, despite this, um, the sin of fornication was committed. <laughs> ah. uh, and in an attempt to hide it, he threw her off a cliff. <laughs> just, just tell her to keep it quiet with her friends. <laughs> threw her off a cliff. It was a different time. <laughs> it was the 70s. <laughs> no, it wasn't. 70s, 70s. AD. <laughs> um, then he went to Rome to beg for absolution, which was refused. <laughs> Like um, for the murder or for the sex? For the murder, really. I'd like to be absolved from murder, please, but with a sex chaser. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at the beginning, when he said a princess comes into his cave, I was thinking, oh, it sounds a bit like the beginning of Notting Hill. Because um, <laughs> that's not... where the, the ce- a celebrity comes into Hugh Grant's bookshop in Notting right. Hill. Okay. Like a very famous wealthy yeah. person comes into the life of an ordinary man. I've not seen Notting Hill. Does he then throw her off a cliff? <laughs> he does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, so then he, um, he lived like a beast, um, crawling on all fours and feeding on wild grasses and roots. And then the princess reappeared alive with the saint's baby. What? Okay. What? And the baby miraculously pronounced his sins to be forgiven. And that was the miracle that made him into a saint. It's very forgiving of the baby. Was she brought back to life by God, or was she? Did she just survive being thrown off a cliff? We don't see that. We don't see that. That happened off screen. Yeah, you have to infer it from yourself. Like it's one of those stories where it could be one or it could be the other, like the end of Inception. 
I thought you could only become a saint by doing three amazing things. I didn't realise you could just get a baby to forgive you. He's done three amazing things. He's had sex with a princess. He's lived like a beast. <laughs> and he's been to Rome. He's been to Rome. <laughs> and he's got a talking baby. It's basically Notting Hill mixed with Inception. Mixed with, look who's talking. <laughs> And that's that's the story of Mozart. Um, Mozart got a lot of bad reviews, interestingly, even oh. during life. Probably used a magic ring, one star. <laughs> <laughs> Fake. And so these were phrases that were used about him. Too strongly spiced, um, impenetrable labyrinths, bizarre flights of the soul, and overloaded and overstuffed. Really? Mm. Yeah, so it wasn't all completely positive. I'm no. not saying he was bad at music. <laughs> <laughs> you one of the haters. Yeah. He may have died. This is interesting. He may have died because he got too little sunlight. Really? Yeah, because he died so young. He was 35 yeah. mm. when he died. And um, he was very nocturnal towards the end of his life. And at where he was living, he died about three months into the winter. And there's a theory that a contributory factor was mm. lack of vitamin D. Because uh, really? you can't make vitamin D if you don't get sunlight. So, um, mm. and there are so many other theories though. There are about twenty theories at least yeah. of what killed him. He was also rejected in other other ways. So he was rejected in love uh, oh. by the first woman he fell in love with. Actually, Aloysia Weber. And he ended up marrying her sister, but he fell in love with her at first. And when asked after his death why she turned him down, she just said, "I did not know. I only thought he was such a little man." Rejected because he was too small. And then another person, uh, the uh, prince-elect of Bavaria, once heard him play and then afterwards said, who would believe that such great things could be hidden in so small a head? So he obviously had a smallness problem that perhaps he was trying to compensate for with it his music. It must have been hard for him to play music with such small hands. He ran up and down the keys. <laughs> <laughs> like, big. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's only thing about him not getting, if he was indoors, not getting enough vitamin D, because you need that to grow, right? <gasps> yes. This is a cracking theory. This is the kind of thing that bullshit science studies get written <laughs> yeah. about. Was Mozart too small because he didn't have enough vitamin D? <laughs> Okay, we should round up pretty soon. Has anyone got anything else? Oh, I just have one thing, which I'm not sure is true, but I like it so much I wanted to say it. <laughs> uh, Mozart apparently had a fear of trumpets, and I read somewhere that to cure him of this, his father hired someone to follow him round with a trumpet and blast the noise to surprise him. <laughs> I don't care if it's not true, because I really like that idea. Wow. I can, kind of knowing what I know about Mozart's father, I can totally imagine yeah, yeah, that. It totally what a horrible fits. man. Yeah. Is he a slave driver? Uh, a little bit, I think. He put his six-year-old on tour for three years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah with no sunlight. Yeah. He stunted his growth. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Deliberately shrunk his own son. <laughs> <laughs> like, honey, I shrunk the kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we should finish on that excellent reference. That's all of our facts for this week. We'll be back again next week with another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. And in the meantime, you can get in touch with us at our group Twitter account, which is at QI Podcast, or individually, you can get in touch with Andy at... At Andrew Hunter M. James. At Eggshaped. And... At Miller underscore Anne. And you can email me at podcast at QI.com. To hear any of our previous episodes, you can go to no such thing as a fish.com. Thanks for listening. See you again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>